Today's reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. And we are reading from the Gospel that we've been using through the last few weeks. Mark, chapter 13. As Jesus was walking out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look at how great the stones are and how great the houses are. But Jesus said to him, You see these great houses, not a stone here shall be left on another, which has not first been torn down. While he was sitting upon the mountain of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things happen, and what sign will there be when all these things are going to be accomplished? Jesus began to tell them, Watch out that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and many will lead astray. But when you hear of wars and the rumours of wars, don't be alarmed. It must happen, but the end is yet to come. For nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In some places there will be earthquakes, there will be famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. But watch out for yourselves. They will hand you over to the council and beat you in the synagogues. You will stand before rulers and kings for my sake as a testimony against them. But to all nations the gospel must first be proclaimed. When they hand you over... Don't worry beforehand about what you should say. Rather, whatever is given to you at that hour, say that. For you will not be the one speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. You will be hated by all on account of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination that causes des desolation standing where he shouldn't, let the reader understand at that very moment that those in Judea flee to the mountains. Let not the man on his housetop come down, nor let him go back inside to take something from the house. And let not the man in the field turn back to, his, to get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant in those days and nursing children. Pray that it doesn't happen during winter, for those days will be a calamity of a sort that has not happened since the beginning of God's creation until now and will never happen again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no man will be saved. However, for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has cut short the days. Whenever someone says, look, here is the Christ, look, there he is, do not believe him. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead, if possible, the elect astray. But watch out, I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, after that calamity, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give off its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. 
then with great power and glory they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He will then send forth his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the depths of the earth to the summit of heaven. But learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch is tender and it sprouts forth leaves, you know that the harvest is near. In the same way, know that when you see these things come to pass, the time is near for the harvest. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or that hour, nobody knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. Watch out, stay awake, for you do not know when that time will come. Like a man who goes on a journey and leaves his house behind, granting oversight to his servants, assigning a task to each and commanding the doorkeeper to keep watch. Be on your guard, therefore. You do not know when the Lord of the house comes, whether it be evening, in the middle of the night, or morning, lest he comes and find you sleeping at that moment. What I say to you, I say to all, be on your guard. Well, call me bizarre, but you have just heard possibly my favourite chapter of Mark's Gospel. I know you hear some of those things and you think, what is going on here? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you and if you will hold these three phrases, I promise you, what seems like a very complex chapter of Mark becomes quite simple. You ready? Here are the three phrases. They are, watch out, seek out, keep guard. Say it with me. Watch out, seek out, keep guard. Those three phrases will help us navigate this passage well. They'll also tell you when I'm coming toward the end of this talk this morning. So here we are in Mark 13, and as we learnt last week in Mark 12, we find ourselves in the very detailed account Mark gives us of the final week of Jesus' life. Day three in Jerusalem, and it's been a day of grief for Jesus. He has been battling with Pharisees, with Sadducees, with scribes, with Herodians, and everybody wants to kill him. Uh, lots of conflict, lots of struggle. And as he exits the city, one of his disciples looks to encourage him and points him to the splendor of the temple. Now, this is a, a harking back to Psalms like Psalm 48, where to see God's temple is a reminder, hey, God's with you, things are all right. But Jesus' response to this encouragement is, is striking because whilst the disciple says, Teacher, look how great the stones are and how great the houses are, Jesus says to him, You see all this? Not one stone shall be left on another, which has not first been torn down. Jesus is essentially saying, I want you to know right now all of this is over. Now, when you read language like Jesus saying, not one stone will be left on one another, already you have an insight to what we're going to read in Mark 13. This is not blueprint language. This is not precise language. This is language that is language of hypertrophy, of exclamation, 
And what we're going to see a little bit later is language that is apocalyptic. It's emotive. It's meant to make us feel things. It's not like reading and engineering blueprints. When Jesus says not one stone will be left on one another, he's not describing specifically the demolition of a building. He's using language like if I were to say to you, wow, it's raining cats and dogs outside, I'm not asking you to call the RSPCA. I'm trying to express to you that it's really pouring. Jesus is saying, hey, this temple and the regime that has been running this city, it's over with. Things are about to change. Now we can confirm this. I've been to Israel and I've seen some of these stones are still on top of one another on the western wall of the temple. What Jesus is saying is things are about to change. Well, his disciples take note and by verse 4 they say to him, Well, tell us, Jesus, when will these things happen and what sign will, be, will there be for when all of these things are going to be accomplished. Let's take a pause and understand verse 4 really well. There are two questions being asked. There's a what question and there's a when question. The disciple asks, when will these things happen and what will be the sign? So we're going to have to look in Jesus' response for an answer to a when question and a what question. And the question regards these things. Well, what are these things? These things are the breaking in of the kingdom of God because this is what Jesus has been speaking about. Remember Mark chapter 1, verse 15. You'll see it on the screen. When Jesus became, began his ministry, he said, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This has been the programmatic statement of the whole of Mark's gospel. Jesus has come to announce the time where God and God's people would be living under God's rule in God's place. All things would be put right. And so now as he says, look, these things are about to end, he's also saying the kingdom that was near is about to dawn. And so they are asking, well, when will this kingdom that is near dawn and what will be the sign? All right, here's where we're going to use our phrases that will help us to understand Mark 13. The first phrase you remember is, watch out. Watch out is a phrase we use to warn ourselves of things to be aware of and not to be, well, attacked by, led astray by. Watch out. Move away from that thing. It's like if I was to give you directions. Sometimes when I'm giving you directions somewhere, I'd say, hey, if you see this building, you've gone too far. You don't want to go there. Jesus now is going to say, watch out. This is a general warning he gives from verses 5 to 13, where he's saying, if you're looking for the kingdom of God, if you're trying to work out when it is and what the sign will be, do not be led astray by these things. Verse 6, he says, watch out for false teachers. There's going to be people who will come along and they will be trying to usher in a regime. Watch out for them. Makes sense that Jesus would say this to his disciples and indeed to us because Mark's gospel has been marked by conflict, hasn't it? Jesus says, many will come in my name. Many will say, I'm he. I'm the one you should follow. 
wasn't this the case with the scribes? Those teachers of the law who are now upset with Jesus, who teaches not like they teach, but with authority. Wasn't this the case with the Pharisees, who honour the traditions of the elders and want to kill Jesus because he does not? Isn't this the case with the Sadducees, who are also the chief priests? They don't believe in the resurrection. They see themselves as the priests, and now there's Jesus who preaches the resurrection. Jesus, who is the one who says, I'm the mediator between God and men. Isn't this the case between the Herodians and indeed Herod Antipas himself, the one who set himself aspiring to be king, Jesus' rival? Many will come in his name. There's lots of conflict in Mark's gospel. Many who sort of say, I'm the one to follow. But Jesus says, don't be fooled by false teachers. Watch out. By false leaders, I'm sorry. Watch out. In ancient times, in our times, whether they help or hinder, so often people can be drawn in or so repelled by the influence of a leader that they'll say, this is it. This is the sign that God must move. Jesus says here, no, it's not. This is no sign. He warns them of wars in verses 7 to 8. In ancient times, groups like the Zealots thought they could provoke God to raise up his Messiah and act to rescue Israel if there was a war, if there was a conflict. Even in our time today, sometimes we think there will be an act of God when the world comes to great conflict and sometimes we hear, oh, it's kicking off in the Middle East again. Maybe God's about to move. This is it. This is it, we say. Jesus says, no, it's not. That's not the sign. Jesus warns in verse 8 of environmental catastrophe. Now, Israel is a place renowned for earthquakes. He says, Look, sometimes you'll hear of earthquakes. There'll be environmental catastrophes. Sometimes throughout history and even till today, what Professor Ian Proven calls the deep green religion has emerged, where the environment has moved in such a way that people begin to worship the environment. Even Paul speaks of this in Romans 1, where no longer did they worship the creator, but worship the creature. There are times where because our environment can be so good, we start to worship it. We start to honour the world we live in rather than the one who created it. Jesus warns them and says, Do not think movements of the earth or of the heavenly bodies are the sign. If someone says to you, this is it, say to them, that's not it. That's not the sign. He warns in verses 9 to 13 of pressure and persecution. Sometimes, both in ancient times and today, people thought, God will have to move. The world is in such moral decay. There is such pressure on Christians. There is such persecution. This is it. This is the sign that God's about to move. Jesus says, no, it's not. It's not. It really is not. In ancient times and today, the emergence of false leaders, wars and rumours of wars, environmental catastrophes, pressure and persecution are no sign at all of the Messiah. They are a sign of something else, 
a sign of probably a truth that is under-realized in our world today. They are a sign simply that the world is broken. They are a sign that our world, since Genesis 3 and the fall, since the emergence of sin, that our world is in bondage to decay. That you and I, despite the good things we can do, are not basically good. No, you and I are basically evil. We're basically bad. And the world is basically broken. And so Jesus says, when you see all of these things, watch out. Be on your guard. They're not the sign. Though you might think they are, though people might say, oh, look, God's about to do something. No, they're simply a sign, simply a reminder that the world is broken, that you are broken, and that we all yearn for more. Let's watch out. Jesus moves in verses 14 to 35 to the next phrase that's going to help us, and that is, seek out. See, now he's going to answer the question of when will these things happen and what will the sign be? What should we look out for? What should we seek out? What is the thing that our eyes should be scanning the horizon for? What is the sign and when is it to come? Jesus answers the question or begins to answer the question in verse 14. He says, but... So you've watched out for the things that are not the sign. But, verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where he shouldn't, let the reader understand. At that very moment, let those in Judea flee to the mountains. This is high-impact language, and what is to follow it is also very high-impact language. It's the language of apocalyptic. It's meant to make you feel disturbed. It's not the language of blueprints that you set your clock to. It's the language that is emotive and caused to bring about a feeling in our tummy. So let's try and understand it. Jesus says, here's when you know these things are going to happen. You'll know that the kingdom is breaking in when you see the abomination that causes desolation. And Mark wants us to understand what that means. An abomination is a horrible sacrilege. Desolation is like a desert to be without, to be alienated, to be not fruitful, to essentially be dying. So there's some kind of horrible sacrilege that leads to separation and desolation. What is it not? At this point, I need to depart from what many Bible teachers and scholars, and maybe you yourself have thought this passage is about. There are also many others, including myself, who don't think it's about this. Some have said the abomination that causes desolation is Jesus predicting the desecration of the Jewish temple and or the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, why would someone say this? Well, because history records that indeed in AD 70, the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was also raised to the ground. As we see the images that unfold as the, as the passage continues, you see that it's very scary stuff and the kind of thing that you can imagine unfolding as uh, a city comes under siege. The problem with that interpretation 
is to suggest that in AD 70, with the desecration of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, is this horrible event Jesus is speaking of that brings in the kingdom of God? Well, it's just not important enough. You see, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, it's not a unique event. In fact, you know that this is the second temple in Jerusalem. The first temple was commissioned by God and built by Solomon. And it was actually attacked a number of times and desecrated more than once. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army would rob the temple and destroy it completely. They would take the, the Jews out of Jerusalem. And the king, the last thing that he would see was his sons put to death before Nebuchadnezzar's armies gouged out his eyes. The destruction of the temple and its desecration in AD 70 is simply not a unique event. It's happened before. It's happened to Solomon's temple. And now to this temple that is built by Herod the Great, it's actually happened before to that one as well. Before Herod renovated this temple, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes came in and erected a statue to Zeus and they slaughtered pigs in there and there were all kinds of terrible things that happened in that temple. So again, it had been defiled. Herod the Great came along, renovated the place, built the temple that stands in Jesus' day. But again, this temple itself was actually defiled by design. It featured all kinds of icons and things that many Jews found terribly distasteful. And in fact, Herod the Great, in a, in a, in a desire to appease Rome, actually erected a giant golden eagle on the door. And some young Jewish men scaled the roof by ropes and chopped that eagle down. It was such an offence. This was a temple that had already been defiled by design and by use. Further, to destroy this temple will not cause desolation. The destruction of a building does not separate God from his people. And lastly, why this is not the way we want to go? This is precisely what Jesus warned against. Don't be fooled by wars or false leaders. This is not the sign. So what is the abomination that causes desolation? Well, it shouldn't surprise you. The horrible sacrilege where people step away from God and are desolate is, of course, the crucifixion of God's Messiah. The abomination that causes desolation, standing where it should not be, is where the only innocent and perfect human who has ever walked the earth, God's blessed Son, is put on a Roman cross, is stripped naked, is abused, and dies of a horrible suffocation. The abomination that causes desolation is the crucifixion of the Saviour, the rejection of the Saviour, the rejection of God's blessing and the embracing of of curse and desolation. Verses 14 to 23 then give apocalyptic images of judgment. Things like how terrible it will be for pregnant women in those days. Pray that it doesn't happen in the winter. Run from your rooftops. This is meant to cause you feeling of this is not just some poor sad man from Nazareth being put to death. This is the hour of judgment. 
This is God's wrath being poured out upon this man. What might look like a two meter square area with a wooden cross and a poor skinny man on it is actually the battle for eternity. Feel the feelings of a city being under siege. Feel the feelings of God's great judgment come. But that is what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples at this time. This is the picture of judgments. This is meant to be emotive. This is meant to move us. Mercifully, in verse 24, Jesus gives us some signs that we can actually see historically that Mark will pick up. Verse 24, Jesus says, But in those days after the calamity, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give off its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Mark and other gospel writers record that at the time when Jesus died, when this abomination that causes desolation took place, at that time, indeed, the sky did turn dark. Indeed, there was an earthquake. Things were shaken and the moon did not give off its light. At that time, God confirmed that this is the sign. And at that time, you may recall, the curtain of the temple was torn. All these things are over, just as Jesus predicted. The time of the temple is over. The curtain is torn. The stones, figuratively, are thrown down. So when is the kingdom dawning? When is the kingdom of God that Jesus had preached about dawning? It's dawning at the crucifixion of Jesus. This is what you should seek out, disciples, if you want to know when these things are happening. But of course, the question was twofold. It was, when will these things be and what will be the sign? Well, verses 26 to 32 teach us what to seek out and teach the disciples what to seek out as the sign that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus says in verse 26, Then at this time, after you see the abomination that causes desolation, then with great power and glory they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Now again, at this point, I need to depart from some beloved brothers, Bible teachers and commentators, and side with some others who see this uh, in a different way. Many have suggested that verse 26 and the coming of the Son of Man, is speaking of the second coming of Jesus from heaven. Something that you and I should anticipate happening. Why would somebody think that? Well, I guess it depends where you stand. When you hear that someone is coming, you think, well, they're coming to me. So when we hear about the coming of the Son of Man, a title we know Jesus uses for himself, we think, well, he must be coming to me. Maybe he's not. There are other parts of the Bible that speak of the coming of, not the Son of Man, but the coming of the Lord. And the coming of the Lord and the coming of the Son of Man are not the same thing. And another reason why we might think that verse 26 refers to Jesus returning to us now from heaven is because we haven't paid sufficient attention to how Jesus in Mark has used this title, Son of Man. 
And so let me give you a very quick overview of all the uses thus far in Mark's Gospel of the title Son of Man. You know that from chapters 1 to 8 of Mark's Gospel, Jesus, Mark is trying to tell us who is this man? And from 8 to 16, he's telling us what has he come to do? Now in the first few chapters, there are two uses. Jesus teaches that Jesus uses Son of Man to describe himself as one with authority to forgive sins on earth. And that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Who is he? Mark paints the picture with this title that Jesus, this upstart guy from Nazareth, he's more than he appears to be. This humble one who the scribes and the Pharisees contend with is much more than they think. What has he come to do? Well, every time Jesus uses the title Son of Man, in the verses I've noted here, he's speaking of the Son of Man has come to suffer, die, and rise. The Son of Man has come to suffer and die. The Son of Man has come to rise from the dead. This is what the Son of Man does. What does the Son of Man come to do? He's come to die and rise again. And Jesus even gives us an instruction. How should we relate to the Son of Man? Don't be ashamed of him. Believe in him. So this is how Mark has uh, shown us Jesus using this title, Son of Man, for himself. So what is the coming of the Son of Man? The coming of the Son of Man is the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Just like Jesus told us, it's the rising from the dead and ascending to the Father. You see, Jesus is picking up on an earlier apocalyptic image from Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. Remember I told you it's all about where you stand? Sometimes we think the coming of the Son of Man means he's coming to me. But of course, in the original vision that Daniel had, Daniel says this, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming on the clouds of heaven. But where was he going? He wasn't coming down. He was going up. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence and he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. The thing with the Son of Man is he was there amongst a beastly representation of those who were contending for sovereignty and power over the earth, different kingdoms. And God raised him up above the beasts, raised him on the clouds of heaven to himself and gave him authority over all. Jesus, here in these verses, announces the sign of when and what we can know that the kingdom of God has come. It's his death, the abomination that causes desolation, and his resurrection, the coming of the Son of Man. And with the coming of the Son of Man, verse 27 tells us things that we already know. With the coming of the Son of Man, the resurrection of Jesus, there will begin a sending and gathering ministry of all nations, the age of evangelism, a time to announce that Jesus is risen and he is here for all people. Verse 28 to 30 teaches that with the death of Jesus and his resurrection, the kingdom of God is realized. That is, there is 
forgiveness for all, just like Jesus said in Mark 2, that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin on earth. Now he has demonstrated that authority by his death and resurrection. Forgiveness is one. Now God's people and God are in right relationship. The coming of the Son of Man, verse 32, confirms that this is something done in God's power. Every other leader who had grasped to be in charge, Jesus is not one who grasps to be in charge. Instead, Jesus lays down his life and it is God himself who picks him up from the grave and by the power of his Holy Spirit makes him alive again. See, at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit had descended upon him and he had been declared the Son of God. That was looking forward to the moment of resurrection where once again the Spirit of God would come upon the dead Jesus and rise him from the grave. And with the coming of the Son of Man, with his resurrection, God would declare him Christ eternal beyond any contention. And with the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus simply confirms exactly what he always said he would do. He would depart and he would come back. He would die and he would rise. Watch out. Do not be fooled. Seek out the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the when and the what of the kingdom. And finally, brothers and sisters, Be on guard. Verse 37, Jesus says to his disciples, What I say to you, I say to all, be on guard. You see, it was true for them and it will be true for us today. We must watch out. We must not be deceived. We live in a time where wonderful leaders can come along and we can devote ourselves to their new wisdom and think, Ah, this is the kingdom we've been waiting for. Or leaders can come along and they can disappoint us. Or they can be so evil that we think, oh, this is the sign, something's going to happen. No, it's not. It means nothing except that you live in an evil world. Don't be fooled. We will hear of wars. We will hear of unrest. It's very distressing. And we yearn for better. But it's not the sign. Do not be distressed. We witness environmental catastrophes. Sometimes we use language of worshipping our environment, which we should steward well, but we worship it so that we say, we're going to protect the world for our children and our children's children. Forgetting that God has said, this world is not forever. What is forever? Those who love me, I will bless down thousands of generations. That is the worship message of the follower of God, rather than environmental worship. And sometimes we hear of pressure and persecution on Christians and and moral decay and all these things. That's the sign. God's got to move now. Nope. It's just a sign that you live in a broken world. There is one sign only. Seek it out and guard it. Seek out the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the only hope for you and I as broken people. You know, sometimes as we think about the second coming of Jesus, that time where he will return in judgment, 
I've heard people say things like, what do you want Jesus to find you doing when he gets back? Almost like my high school days when the teacher would walk out of the room and you don't want to be caught doing the wrong thing when they walk back in. Let me assure you of something. When Jesus comes back, you won't be living perfectly. Nor will I. You're a sinner and so am I. Let me assure you of something else. Jesus is not the teacher who's left the room who doesn't see you and I right now. He knows our full record. He knows our full sin. The way to prepare for the return of Jesus, which every eye will see and every knee will bow at, is to observe and put your faith in the coming of the Son of Man, the resurrection of Jesus that happened 2,000 years ago. If you will trust in the risen Jesus, you will be prepared despite your sin for the returning Jesus. And so be on guard. Have certainty for the return. Look to the resurrection of Jesus. Do not be fooled by the calamities we face. Seek out only the death and resurrection of Jesus and be on guard. Hold tight to that for it is our only certainty for eternity. He is our Lord. He shall return. We know this because he has returned before. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he remained true to his promise that he would die and that he would rise again. And we thank you that you, Heavenly Father, in the power of your Holy Spirit, rose him from the grave. You did not allow your Holy One to see decay. No, the Son of Man has come. That horrible abomination, that great sacrilege that causes desolation, that rejection of the Saviour has actually resulted in the payment of sin and the coming of the Son of Man, his resurrection, has resulted in new life for all. And so, Father God, we are not disciples sitting on the Mount of Olives. We are disciples on the other side of the resurrection. As we await the return of Jesus for the final instalment, all things to be made new, may our hope, May our security be in putting our trust in the one who was raised from the dead. For he is our Lord and he is our Saviour. In him we place our hope.